Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Tuesday, September 9th, 2020. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. I hope those of you who observed Yom Kippur had an easy fast. I did not. I was starving from about 3 o'clock onward. It was really very, very grim. It was a grim scene here, and I'm still, I'm basically got post-traumatic stress disorder from it, so if I seem a little rattled today, that's that's why, but not rattled. Uh, we got senior writer Christine Rosen. Looks very unrattled. Hi, Christine. <laughs> Hi, John. Uh, maybe a little rattled, but for other reasons, associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. I Are you rattled? Like rattled? You're I not rattled? Like rattled? Okay. And never rattled <laughs> about anything, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Rattle free. He's rattle free. Okay. Um, so speaking of rattling, how rattled do you think Donald Trump and the campaign are by the New York Times uh, story, the, now two stories about his uh, uh, taxes, finances, and uh, money earning? Um, uh, so let me just put it this way. Uh, it's not that the story is a whole lot of nothing. It's in no way is it a whole lot of nothing. Uh, however, there is no such thing as tax avoidance. There is either tax fraud or there is uh, using the tax code as it is written legally to um, to pay uh, the taxes that you legally owe. So either you consciously uh, violate that uh, through f- uh, fraudulent means or you ignorantly violate it uh, by mistake, which is partially what sometimes what audits are intended to discover. And you're still on the hook for the money that you owe even if you didn't mean to not pay everything you owe, or uh, you simply followed the law as it is written and paid as much as you were supposed to pay. There is no such thing as tax avoidance. Everybody in the world pays as much tax as they are legally obliged to pay. So uh, the, the, the sleazy aspect of this story is the presumption that though they could find no example of Trump committing fraud, the clear implication of the story is that what he did and how he and how he did it was somehow criminal, and um, that I think is sleazy. Although it is certainly very interesting and very much worth a subject worthy of discussion, that he ended up paying seven hundred and fifty dollars in taxes in 2016 and 2017 a fact that we would know if he released his tax returns the way almost every major politician has done since the 1968 election i think when richard nixon uh, released all of his tax returns um because and then it turned out by the way that nixon owed the uh, irs like hundreds of thousands of dollars but he released them and then he paid what he owed and uh, other interesting things uh, came from that. So anyway, that's that's my general overview view of this is either say he committed a crime or say he didn't commit a crime. You can't you can't sleaze the notion that because he did what was legally in his interests and legally allowed to do that he did, somehow did something wrong. Yeah, I don't think that's the <laughs> sleazy part of this story. A, a lot of this was known previously. Um, the the rate, what he paid in income taxes offset by losses has the appearance of being uh, improper. 
uh, though it's not illegal. But the sleazy stuff is the extent to which the implication is in this story that he profited off the presidency. Um, there's some 26 million in unexplained consulting fees from work done in Azerbaijan, his effort to reduce his taxable income by uh, treating family members as consultants to his uh, to the business, Philippine leader Rodrigo Duterte um, choosing special envoys uh, uh, to uh, see uh, Trump to Trump Tower in Manila, and apparently in Argentina, a key person who had been involved in a Uruguayan licensing deal that Mr. Trump earned two point three million on was appointed to a cabinet post. Um, some Turkish. Uh, Turkish Airlines choosing a Trump National Golf Club in suburban Virginia to host an event only after they canceled an event when Turkish-American uh, relations uh, were at a, a low point over the Armenian issue, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, I mean, the implication here is that the is that Trump has been benefiting financially from the presidency as in, in sort of an, an entropic way, just the existence of his businesses and his susceptibility to being influenced by foreign powers um, uh, patronizing these businesses uh, creates a conflict of interest. Now, is that illegal? Yeah. <laughs> if you really if you really were to actually prove an emoluments violation here, yes, that would be a, con- a violation of his constitutional duties. Um, they don't go so far as to allege that uh, clearly and, and in print, but that is the implication. So you're saying that this is something sleazy that Trump did that is in the story that they don't highlight in the story. That's what you're saying. I mean, I highlighted it okay. when I read it. No, That's but what I'm, what I'm saying is the story is focused as follows. He Maximum paid seven hundred and fifty. Right. He paid seven hundred fifty dollars in taxes, and the clear implication is that he did something wrong by only paying seven hundred fifty dollars in taxes. The problem is. He either did something illegal or he didn't. Now, this other stuff goes somewhere else. But that is not what they chose to highlight, and that is not what is going to be discussed and has been discussed for the last 24 hours. Abe? They also chose to highlight um, his reported losses. Um, um, And that was interesting to me because it had the feel of a personal hit um, that the Times very much wanted to get under his skin by calling him a bad businessman and, um, you know, not the, not the high earner that he brags about being, um, which in some sense um, sacrifices their story of his being sleazy and not paying what he owes. Because if he really didn't make money, as they imply, then he doesn't owe taxes if his losses are, are, are so great. So the, here's an interesting historical parallel thing that I don't think anybody has really pointed out. In the late 60s, a minimum tax was created that we now know as the alternative minimum tax, which a lot of people have to pay if they have a lot of freelance income. And the reason that it was created, and it was created by Lyndon Johnson, I mean, it was created in the mid to late 60s by largely by Lyndon Johnson, uh, was that... Uh, they needed more, the government needed more money because it was doing the guns and butter strategy of fighting Vietnam and wildly expanding uh, the social safety net. And uh, the head of the IRS, I believe at the time, uh, basically said, we need this tax because there are 155 of the richest people in America pay no tax because they use the 
deductions and various uh, tax shelters and things in the tax code. And they manipulate them and therefore they pay no tax and everybody has to pay tax. So we are going to create a minimum tax, essentially a flat tax for very rich people that they are going to have to pay. And we're now 50 years into this regime and there's a lot of trouble with the alternative minimum tax because it seems unfair to people because people get trapped in it and all of that. But uh, this was a real thing that the that the the tax code was created, and then all of these incentive structures to do various things with business, to help business to do things that Congress decides at some moment it thinks is are, is good and should be supported, or you know basically at the least subsidized through uh, tax advantages, and then that channels money in that direction. Because people say, well, I'd rather take my chances fooling around and futzing around with tax shelters than just handing the money to the government, because at least I may profit, I can do this, and all of that. And then we have these kinds of results that Trump clearly has taken advantage of his whole career, which is that if you lose at a colossal amount of money, you can then offset that against your gains, and then you don't have to pay uh, taxes in that that year, though you may have to pay taxes in subsequent years or whatever. Um, if we don't want this to happen, there is a very simple answer to this problem. You know what it's called? The flat tax. The flat tax is everybody in the country pays 20%. There are no deductions. There's nothing. Bit done. And this, by Democrats, is considered the most awful idea ever because it's not progressive right? And taxation should be progressive. Rich people should pay more than poor people and so on. And that, that makes, that makes perfect sense. Which they do in this country. We have a very progressive tax code right now, but to have that and all of the different uh, complications of that tax code, you also then introduce all of these uh, ways of getting around it. The tax professionals devise for, for the people who can afford to hire their, hire them for their services. I mean, honestly, it was funny to, I mean, if you're really angry about these stories, you should be lobbying the House Ways and Means Committee, which writes the tax code. Now, I, two points, though, that I think are interesting. In a, at a moment where what some estimates say, like 85% of the American public has already made up its mind about who it's going to vote for in this election, this didn't have the gotcha October surprise um, heft that that one would think it should have had. I agree with Noah about the emoluments issues; those are uh, concerning. But I wonder about the messaging, especially as we go into this uh, debate tonight, because Joe Biden's idea of like he's Scranton values and you know everyday common man versus Park Avenue Trump with his you know tax loopholes. It, it's not. It's definitely a narrative, but it's not one based in fact because all those Park Avenue people are actually funding Biden's campaign. Like he's actually the candidate of Park Avenue and Wall Street. I mean, it's very clear who they're putting their money behind in this election. So I do wonder if that message will land. I mean, it's a wonderful debate zinger, right? You only paid this amount of money. Um, And Trump might not be sophisticated enough to come up with a decent response in the heat of the moment to it. But um, this idea that somehow Biden is, is not the kind of politician who, having been in Washington for decades and having, uh, you know, had his own family-related grifts for years, um, isn't going to continue doing that, just as, you know, they all do. And um, this is this is a kind of bipartisan thing. It's, it's what Trump ran against in 2016 as an outsider and can't as an insider this time. But I don't find the Biden message compelling on this in terms of like he's Mr. Scranton. That just doesn't Well, look, Biden, Biden spent 40 years practically representing the tax shelter state yes. Thank you. of the United States <laughs> right. in the Senate. I mean, 
all Delaware is economically is a tax shelter. It's a series of tax shelters. Now, fine. I mean, I, I'm not, that is all legal. And it, it, but if, if Biden were Bernie, just to give you an example, Bernie could crush Trump like a bug with stuff like this. I mean, you know, d- d- different kinds of politicians can do different kinds of things. And I think Biden will probably crush him like a bug anyway, because to explain, Trump will say, I believe, it doesn't, who knows what he'll say, but he, he'll say, yeah, I was smart. This is what he said in 2016. No one's ever said I did anything illegal. I've not done anything illegal. I did what the tax code allowed me to do. That's what you do. That's what everybody does. And so I'm brilliant, not stupid. And that's why I know how to run this country, because I understand how things really work. Yeah, I don't, I don't think any of this is a winning message for Joe Biden. Um, really? <laughs> no, I honestly don't. Why? I think Explain progressives why. Will be in, progressives will be enlivened by this. Progressives want to see him go for the throat. Um, what Joe Biden's campaign has been all about has been being a milk toasty sort of warm, grandfatherly, ephemeral version of a president that exists only in the minds of fiction writers and like Aaron Sorkin types. If he was, if he is to go into the, in the attack and make progressives really happy by espousing progressive values, what have you, it um, doesn't do anything for his underlying mission, which is to do what Democrats want to see the most, which is the two biggest issues on democratic minds. According to a poll I saw this morning, dovetails with other polls, coronavirus by a mile followed by uniting the country. Um, those are top two issues for Democrats. Republicans, it's the economy and crime. Um, but at much lower rates, like th- one third of, of Republicans versus like two thirds of Democrats on both those issues, two thirds and 50%. Um, so what Joe Biden has to do is be the uniting candidate. He's got to be the good guy. If he goes and he can defend himself, he can parry and he can thrust a little bit, but he can't be too pointed. Oh, I don't agree. I don't agree that you can't be pointed and still be the good guy. You can be totally pointed and still be the good guy. It just depends on how you're appointed. First of all, there's no way that relative to Trump, and if you're not Hillary, the most dislikable person on the planet Earth, uh, you're going to look more likable. The question is whether you'll look weak or milk toasty or, or, or kind of like you don't have any life to you, but you'll certainly look like you're a better guy. I mean, I don't think it's the whole point about the Republicans in 2016 when Trump kept you know, like smushing them in the debate, even though we didn't really quite know that was what was going on, is that they didn't want somebody they liked. I mean, what they liked was his aggression. What they liked was his nastiness. What they liked was his, all right, enough of this crap. I'm sick of this crap. You're all full of this politician crap, and I'm sick of it. And it is not clear that that is what the American people want in 2020. In fact, uh, so Biden has running room to uh, go on the attack and be not like he can, you know, Reagan was very good at this. Not that he's Reagan, but it's not like Reagan wasn't tough on Carter until Carter said what he said. And then Reagan went, there you go again. You know, which was that there's a great, our friend Tevi Troy, who's been on the podcast a bit, has a great piece in city journal, which I recommend to people who are about to watch the debate tonight about sort of previous presidential debate. And in particular, the whole class of people who helped prep, 
presidents for debate. And he has some great anecdotes about Reagan and Carter and Ford. I mean, one of the things he points out, though, is that Reagan didn't do well when he was trying to be specific about things. And it was only after Roger Ailes sat him down and said, stick to your themes. Just go with your gut and stick to your themes. That will connect. Anything they say, just turn it to one of your themes. And that's when he was able to kind of revive his debating style in a way that, that, that was effective. And so I wonder if, I mean, Trump kind of, was one sort of debater in the primaries, but he became a little bit different when he went up against Hillary and he stuck to those themes. And it did work. Like she had all her policy details and her little, you know, she was all obviously super prepared and a straight A student. And he, you know, demolished her by just hammering his themes and not even engaging on the details of policy and just, you know, obviously making stuff up, which is what he does. But rhetorically, it was quite effective. Yeah, And then, and then insulting her. I mean, but the thing was, remember, all the polls after those debates, there were three debates, and all the polls said that Hillary cleaned up. She won 60-40 in the, in the post-debate polls. So I don't think, I mean, you know, I, I don't think Trump did particularly. Again, I think we're, we, we look at this election in 2016, and the only way to really understand it is Comey on October 28th. I mean, I, you know, absent Comey on October 28th, there was no clear trajectory by which Hillary's vote was going to collapse a little bit in the last week and that Trump was going to, you know, basically thread the needle and, and get through. So in the absence of a Comey thing, and then the question is, is this the Comey thing for Trump? In the sense that you paid $750, you say you're a billionaire and you paid $750 in taxes. Is that fair is that fair, Mr. President? You think that's, here's where that, that's here's the where kind that of country hits. you want to run? <laughs> but here's where that hits. Donald Trump would agree with that, right? Uh, he, his, his political instincts are toward a populist appeal, which would lead him to instinctively agree with that position. Now, he can't, but whatever response he's going to cook up is going to be insincere, right? Because he would believe that, yeah, you should be paying more in taxes. That's what he's been, that's where his his heart is. Really? I don't see it that way at all. I mean, you know, as John said, he's in 2016, he said not paying a lot in taxes isn't, isn't bad. It's smart. I'm, I'm That's smart. I'm smart. That. that was his defense, you know, by the way, just right. on, on the point of going after Trump aggressively and, um, uh, the Republicans having not wanted a, a, a nice person and wanted a sort of nasty person. There is a challenge there for Biden, I think, because um, when you try to play his game, Trump's game, you you are lowered automatically. We, we saw that with the Republicans who sort of got fed up with the nastiness and tried to counter it on on Trump's terms. And it, they want each one successively. um um, was uh, taken down by that to one degree or another. Yeah, but Biden isn't that. Biden has debated at a national level. Biden debated Sarah Palin and he debated Paul Ryan. Mm-hmm. And he cleaned Paul Ryan's clock. This is why in 2016 and 2017, I said, I said, Biden is the guy, aside from Oprah, who should be the Democratic nominee, and that Biden and that Obama made a mistake by pushing Hillary and not letting Biden run. Because if you remember what he did to, uh, to Paul Ryan, he scoffed at him. He laughed in his face. 
Ryan would say, well, we want that, you know, very earnestly. And then Biden would giggle. He would giggle and yeah. scoff. And then he said, ah, that's a lot of malarkey and all of that. He was disrespectful. Mm-hmm. He was condescending. He was obnoxious. And it was devastating. Now, it's eight years later. He's playing a different game, as Noah says. He's playing. But that's the real Biden. The jerk is the all this Mr. Empathy. And he calls people with stutters and all of that. Fine, whatever. That's not the Joe Biden anybody knew in Washington for 30 years. What they knew was he was the blabbermouth, tiresome blabbermouth, overexcited, thin-skinned kind of moron, but kind of nice and remembered everybody's name. And, you know, he was the senator from this tiny state uh, where once you get into office, you never leave office. And so whatever – Biden didn't change his personality in the last eight years, unless, you know, unless he's like had such deep cognitive decline that he no longer has any aggression in him. Well, and I, yeah, no, that's very interesting. I mean, by the way, I remember and this my response to that debate with Paul Ryan, I was horrified. I mean, I, I was shocked that it was effective for Biden, ultimately, because I remember watching it thinking this is absolutely atrocious because uh, you have to say Paul Ryan is as different a debating opponent from Trump as one could be. I mean, you know, Ryan was actually being respectful and um, sort of speaking in terms of facts and numbers and figures and was was getting that sort of treatment. I don't I don't know what it looks like against Trump to do well, that. Well, and Al, Al Gore, I remember the one of the Bush-Gore debates. I don't remember which one, but he was completely rude. Like he was literally rolling his eyes. I remember thinking, God, he's like a, he's like a little pesky teenager who's just, you know, about to be grounded and sent to his room. I mean, he was just, he was sighing and rolling his eyes and that didn't play well then. Yeah, but people but played forget. Well later. Right, so here's the thing. Al, there is something wrong with Al Gore. I mean, one of the things that those debates showed was that there's something wrong with Al Gore. His responses to things in the moment were weird. And so, and he could change them on a dime. So he was condescending and eye rolling in one debate. And then he was excessively cautious and, and, and was, you know, having watched the debate and, you know, they made him watch it so he would know what he did wrong. And then he changed up and then he tried to be a different person, all that. There was something off about him like that was not it was not genuine to him right so trump is trump and he's genuine and when he was you know sort of like being trying to stay to stick to his points in 2016 he stuck to his points he didn't like go totally hog wild but then he did say i would send you to jail to hillary Mm -hmm. he walked around behind her trying to rattle her all of that Gore tried to do that to Bush. Do you remember this? Yeah. Gore like walked around to Bush and, you know, one of the great he looked like a robot, moments though. of all time, he was walked over to Bush and then Bush looked at him and nodded and then went up like, oh, hey, how you doing? And then like went on talking. It was a fantastic moment because it's like, uh, there's kind of a crazy person over here, but I'm just, you know, I'm he's, he's, he's a nice guy. It's fine. We'll go on. Whatever. Um, now, these debates aren't going to matter very much. I mean, the only way they're going to matter is if they do something to harm Biden materially. Yeah, I, I think you hit on a, a pretty interesting theme because you had that really physically aggressive performance by Al Gore. 
And we've been talking about this really theatrically aggressive performance by Joe Biden. And, you know, you've, you've seen a lot of that where where they don't, where the first debate with uh, Obama and Romney and the first debate between Clinton and Trump, both Clinton and Obama were criticized extensively for not being aggressive enough because it was perceived that they lost those first debates, right? Or didn't overperform. And um, the, the morning after Obama was, the press was full of, Uh, reports about Obama promising a more aggressive approach in his next debate with Mitt Romney, which he definitely delivered, and Hillary Clinton going very personal about sexism and what have you in the second 90-minute debate that they had. So the incentives are toward an aggressive display, even though what you're saying is it backfired for Al Gore. It didn't backfire for Joe Biden. So the press wants to see aggression. It's not just the press. I don't think it's just the press. I think that what you want to see is an engaged person who looks like they're the kind of person that you wouldn't mind having on your TV screen for the next four years. I mean, I I, I don't know how else to describe that, but um, when Al Gore, you know, becomes a comic character on SNL as a result of the first debate with that slow, drawly lockbox blah, 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 all of that stuff. You're like, I don't know if I want to watch that guy for the next four years. Remember, he, you know, he almost won the press. I mean, it was a tie president. It was a tie election. So, you know, it's not like he killed himself or anything like that. Um, But uh, that's the issue here is there's no winning and there's no losing except, I mean, look, what was the... Romney gave, I think, the most single most devastating debate for the first debate with Romney. And why was that? Because everybody had had this idea of Romney, and then he comes up, and he is smart, he's smooth, he's good-looking, he's eloquent, he's uh, he's tough without being hostile, and um, Obama was lazy and sloppy and unengaged, and Democrats all panicked. And so did Obama, and every Republican on earth went, oh, my God, maybe we can win this thing. I I, I didn't even know that. I wasn't even sure that was even possible. Um, If somehow Trump isn't Romney, I know it's weird because he's the president, but if somehow – and then it settled down, and Romney didn't win, obviously. But um, if Trump doesn't do something – where you say, I don't care what the media say, he won this debate, it will be a failure for him. You know? Well, and I mean, I- he has to win the debate. He is behind. I mean, we, are, we now have two polls yesterday that have him down between 9 and 12 points in Pennsylvania. If he doesn't win Pennsylvania, he does not win the presidency. Well, there's also a strange thing that's happened even even since 2016, I think. But it, 2016 sort of revealed this uh, more starkly than any previous presidential election in that we most of the time that we spend consuming politics in this country is listening to people about the candidate, right? We don't actually have as much direct, you, you don't really feel like you're hearing from your president or the presidential candidates all that much directly. It's their people. It's the, it's the punditocracy. It's, you know, cable news. And in some ways, I feel like people only watch, at least some of the people I know, only watch the debates to actually either have the stereotypes they already have in mind endorsed by their by the actual live behavior of the candidate, 
or to be surprised. And I think Trump surprised everyone in 2016 when he debated Hillary Clinton. Most people didn't follow the primary debates, obviously. But when he when he was debating Clinton, they watched and he was surprisingly effective. That doesn't mean you necessarily liked him or his policies. But I do feel like people who consume political culture do so on the on the margins and listen to everybody's opinions. And I do think there's still this possibility for both Biden and Trump to surprise either positively or negatively, depending on what they do. But that's why I mean, that's why we tune in right to see if if Joe Biden is cognitively, you know, compromised and if Trump is going to just fly off the handle and be Twitter Trump or if he's going to be disciplined. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is uh, there's a lot of room for anything to happen on either side, particularly in in this case. I think I was talking to someone last night who said, "I'm not going to watch the debates because I can't stand the debates because it's all um, it's all canned and no one answers the, the the questions directly, and you know you can see the messaging and the avoidance of the issues." Um, and I said, "But this this is not necessarily what you're going to get." Um, tomorrow night, uh, meaning tonight. I mean, this is, this is, there's nothing sort of business as usual about this debate. And I think b- both men are, in their own ways um, are such wild cards going into this that, that we don't know is, is you know, is Biden going to be absolutely on his game and, and shock us that way? Or is he going to have a, a, a moment or several of them? Or is Trump going to be somehow shockingly in command um, in the way that he kind of was for some of the Hillary encounters? So it's kind of important to remember <clears throat> why Donald Trump was effective. And this is there was this hardly scientific but really interesting experiment that was done to challenge people's perceptions about how these two guys performed um, via uh, the business school in said. So they had professional uh, actors portray Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton line for line, uh, moment for moment, uh, you know, gesticulation for gesticulation, but reversing the genders so that Hillary Clinton was played by a man and Donald Trump was played by a woman. And this audience that pers- that was pr- privy to this experiment found their uh, perceptions to be challenged in ways that were surprising to them. Um, audience members found Donald Trump in the voice of a woman to be more precise, whereas Hillary Clinton's caution and timidity and uh, perturbability was deemed by at least one audience member punchable. Um, it was a, de- was a demonstration of how the condescension that the left expected from Hillary Clinton and which she delivered didn't work for her. Um, and hardly had anything to do with uh, sex, but sanctimony. And I just look, don't think Joe Biden's going to turn in that kind of performance. Look, let's be real here. Okay. It's 2020. We can say, we said it then we could say it now without caution. Hillary Clinton was a dreadful, dreadful, dreadful candidate. She was false. She was deceitful. She was dislikable. Her policy prescriptions were not credible. Her, her, she could never overcome the very real sense that a great many people had that she was only sitting there because her husband had been president and she in an effort to retain her connection to power, allowed him to ritually humiliate her in front of the American people in the world because she wanted to grab at the big brass ring. And her own behavior with her emails and various other things then led to her own personal downfall. So Biden is running as the most generic Democratic candidate the most generic party candidate that has ever run for any office. He is generic 
Democrat. He is he states most of the policy prescriptions of the party, but in a milk toast way. He is not uh, he is not pushing an agenda. He is representing an agenda. He is the not Trump. He is generic Democrat. And under those conditions, Trump has to labor to make him anything but this kind of mirrored vessel. And if he can do that, maybe he'll have an opportunity to make up this ground. Maybe. But it's not so easy because Biden isn't represent Biden isn't I'm the first woman. I'm a I'm a I'm a va- I'm the vanguard. We're changing everything. Biden's like I don't want to change anything except the trajectory that we're on right now with this one guy. So if you want that, I'm here and to everybody who would have voted for the any democrat, he's like I'm talking about the environment. I'm talking about Me Too. I'm talking about Black Lives Matter. I'm doing, you know, he's kind of like what Dole said, right? Where Bob Dole said, I, I can be conservative. That's what you want me to be, you know? And so um, that's the slippery, that's where Trump is, That one of the reasons Trump is having incredible difficulty getting purchase on Biden is that Biden isn't anything. Now, ordinarily, that would be a terrible thing when you're running for president to be nothing, except that Trump is too much. He's too much. He, it's all him. It's too much. Like, they come up with this story on a Sunday night. What happened on Saturday? Amy Coney Barrett was announced in this triumphant moment. Now she's going to be an afterthought at this debate because they're going to spend 45 minutes on his goddamn taxes. I mean, you know, there's no getting away from Trump. And so all Biden is like is, can you take this anymore? Can you? And it just seems every poll that comes out everywhere says people seem to have had enough. I mean, I'm not saying that it's good. I'm not saying that it's bad. I'm not saying it's, unf- you know, and if people want to say this is so unfair, Trump's been treated so unfair, this is all because he's being treated unfairly by the media. I agree that like this story is garbage, right? I mean, it's not garbage in the sense that it's fascinating. It's well reported. They got a leak of, a, of a, an unprecedented and likely it's a felony. We should, yeah. It is a felony act, by yeah. the way. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so you remember all that publishing Hillary's emails was a felony and therefore, you know, or the DNC leak was a felony and nobody should publish and write about it at all. Somehow that doesn't come up here. Um, But, you know, it's like you can't, there's no, there's no escaping. It's like people want some air. They'd like a little air. And so, and Trump doesn't know that, like he can't know that it's everything that he can't know. So he will likely I think, respond wrongly. Noah sort of said what he should say, I think, which is, you know what? It's terrible that I paid $750 in taxes. It was legal, but, you know, the country would be better served if hedge fund guys and I and people like me paid more taxes. And and go ahead. Why didn't you, Joe, in your decades in office, do something about the tax code? Well, how's the president going to say that when he presided over the first reformation of the tax code in a generation and a half? Well, he can say Joe Biden, <laughs> Joe, Joe did participate in the reformation of the tax. Code. I don't know how he voted on tax reform. 
I mean, he was in the Senate for the biggest tax reform bill, you know. Um, Not in 2017. No, in 1986. The tax reform of 1986 was the, you know, was the, Biden was in the Senate. So uh, I just want to see how he voted. Because, um, of course, he always voted wrongly on everything, as as we as we know. So, you know. Um, I mean, I think the, <laughs> Trump can say this is wrong and it should be changed and it's up to Congress to change it. And Joe Biden will say, well, you presided over the tax reform of 2017. Why didn't you change it then? And then Donald Trump will parry and go after Joe Biden's voting record and everybody's eyes will glaze over and no right. one will remember a single moment right. from that exchange. Well, Biden can say I voted. I just looked it up. He voted for tax reform in 1986. So, okay. and you know what that did? It closed loopholes and it closed real estate loopholes. And we didn't close enough of them. As it turns out, because you, you Ghanif, you went and you stole a billion dollars from the American people with these nonsense losses that you claimed or whatever. Um, Okay, how about the other aspect of the story, which is this whole question of whether or not he paid uh, in an effort to escape the gift tax or some version of it. You know, he paid Ivanka a $770,000 consulting fee. Uh, See, again... That's not good because he can say I needed Ivanka of, of a loan of all people on earth to do this for $770,000. But you're not, you know, again, Biden can say you go to your parents because you want to borrow money for your first home. And they scrambled, they scrambled together $20,000 to give it. And only 15000 of that is, is, you know, they have to pay taxes on that other 5000 Well, guess what? Your parents should hire you as a consultant. Because if they hire you as a consultant, they can give you anything and not pay any taxes on it. I don't know. Biden is not exactly. I don't think that's. I don't okay. think he wants to go there because he was literally, <laughs> as vice president, giving Hunter rides on Air Force Two to go make, you know, extremely lucrative deals for himself and Biden's other siblings too. I mean, he's he's as in deep in that in that sort of grift that that's done in Washington, the swamp type stuff that that Trump vowed to clean up, but in fact only escalated. Um, and, you know, put a little gilding on. So even even if he's not as deeply into it, I mean, that is going to be Trump's response to right. any and it every really insinuation right. about about Trump's dirty dealings. Yeah. To which Joe Biden will appeal to the depths of all despair and describe his experience as a young widower and the loss of Bo and the attack is entirely neutralized. If he doesn't Maybe. get rattled. If it doesn't well, get under his skin. Yeah. It doesn't he get he did in 2008. Look, he's been doing more debate prep than any human being has ever done. Right. If he gets or rattled. Or napping, we're not sure. Yeah, or both. <laughs> um, uh, anyway, here's another interesting thing. What we have seen this year in 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 the Corona's kind of depression uh, and the response to things is this kind of withdrawal from institutions that are, are trying to kind of like get something going during the during this period, right? So, take sports. So there has been this: baseball started, basketball playoffs are going football started no one's watching i mean not no one but basically there is 20 percent declines in audience across the board or more for these 
sports. Now they're weird. There's no fans. They have fake noise. They have those bizarre, you know, like d- cutouts in the stands. So it's kind of discomforting to watch or whatever. Traditionally, the debates are wildly watched. Tens of millions of people, 60, 70, 80 million people, 100 million people or something watched the Bush Gore, the first Bush Gore debate, I believe. It's some some crazy number like that. What if nobody watches? What if nobody watches? Like, it's entirely possible that no one's going to watch this thing. Okay, but sports has become uh, egregiously politicized, which is terrible. Um, Maybe politics will become more of a sport and people will watch it for entertainment. I mean, maybe not. I mean, the primary debates were not always well watched. Uh, I mean, we watched them. But uh, I I don't know. I think people will tune in. What else is going on? (laughs) Yeah, I I don't know. I'm with you, Christina, insofar as we've seen polling saying professional sports support for professional sports is down by double digits, primarily among Republicans and independents, because they're sick and tired of the politics that you were bombarded with during the, during the performance, after the performance, during the commercials, it's all politics all the time. So yeah, if people tune out of this debate, it wouldn't surprise me at all because politics fatigue is, is very real and it has everything to do with the ubiquity of this president and the ubiquity of the, the progressive effort to transform politics into a a society wide ethos, not just something that happens in Washington, but something that happens when you buy your favorite brand, when you go to your local, uh, you know, social events, it's politics is everything. So yeah, if people are tuning out of politics, there's every reason for it because politics is everywhere. So why would you want to turn it, tune into an explicitly political event? I think last the debates in 2016 got like 84 million people, which was, I think a record. I could be wrong because, John, you say the record was set in 2000. But 84 million people is a ridiculous amount of people. That's a, that's a it's good a portion. Fifth, of it's a fifth of vote. the country. It's a fifth, fifth of, of the country, country and, like, maybe more than half of how many people actually vote yeah. in this country. But, you know, um, so it, I just it wouldn't shock me to see a, a lower debate audience because we've seen a lower debate audience during the primaries. And maybe this is different, but I just think people are sick and tired of politics becoming this ubiquitous thing that infests every aspect of life. Oh, I, I think we'd like them to be sick and tired of it. I, I think I think they feed on it, uh, sadly. But even if... Maybe they just say it to pollsters, yeah. Even, even if there is um, a, a lower debate audience, I think it will be made up for in the fact that there's a different version of viewership now, too, that can't be avoided, which is that even if you don't tune into the debate, you will have clips of it um, pushed at you um, over the next day and the following week, uh, whenever you go online, whenever you are, whenever you turn on the TV, whenever, you know, it's in, it'll chase you down the moments from the debate. We'll, we'll, you will be forced to watch them one way or another on social media, on TV, um, via email, whatever it is. I mean, everyone ends up having to having to watch. To be fair, I think that's always been true of the debates. I mean, more people, you know, if you... If you were watching the Hillary Clinton Rick Lazio debate <laughs> uh, in 2000, when Lazio walked over to her and asked all her of to those s- individuals, <laughs> yeah, walked over to her and asked her to hand hand her a piece of paper, and then the whole idea was she he invaded her personal space. It was an invasion of her personal. Space. Oh my God! Right. Well, not that many people watched it at the time. 
But the framing of the clip, which was, look at Blasio, mm-hmm. Blasio invading Hillary's personal space, became the only thing that mattered from that debate. And he basically his goose was cooked after that um, because he invaded her personal space by walking over and trying to hand her a piece of paper. Mm-hmm. You, know, you can't hand threat- Hillary Clinton a piece of paper. I mean, anyone who felt threatened by Rick Blasio so, is not, does not yeah. have the stomach to be a leader of any sort. Right. right. <laughs> so, I mean, and that was, my point is that was 20 years ago. So, so this, this is, you know, and people remember things like, there you go again, or I paid for this microphone, Mr. Green or whatever, because they saw the clip over and over and over again. So the whole point is that, I'm suggesting that there is a general withdrawal that Corona has created. And maybe maybe you're right that it's because there's too much politics and that's the thing. Or maybe it's just like, I can barely get out of bed. In the, like, I can't even, like, life sucks. What am I going to do? Watch 90 minutes of a debate between an ass and a, and a senile person? Like, that, that's what I need to do tonight? You know, that's that's my that's my idea of a good time. And if if, if I'm right about this and it's God, my idea of a good time. Okay. But God only knows if I'm right about this, but won't that call into question this whole notion that we are going to see turnout like we have never seen before in November? Okay, Noah's making a face. I cause because we're you're not visual, I just want to explain that Noah just made the um what was her name? Michaela the, the oh, gymnast? Uh, what was yeah, her name? yeah, yeah. I can't remember her. Yeah, the Michaela the gymnast face when she <laughs> didn't when she didn't get the gold. Yeah. Anyway, so Noah doesn't like that about the turnout. Why? Well, because ninety minutes of your time is a bigger investment than a vote. Not really, because it's going to take you. You know, when you go, if you actually go on election day to vote. Uh, you're going to be standing like two miles from the voting machine, you know, because not everywhere. Of, because not of everywhere. Yeah, it depends, depends on your precinct. Yeah. Uh, most I'd say urban areas. Yes. Um, most of the country it's, it's by no means that onerous. No, it's because of social distancing. Cause everyone's supposed yeah, to be standing in the primaries. There was, in the air. there was no social distancing. Well, it, no, it's just low traffic. Well, there's not supposed to be low traffic. That's the whole point. There's supposed to be 150 million people voting. There's not low traffic. If, if in fact, this is a turnout election of the sort that we saw in like 2008, then there is no, no place will be low traffic. And you're going to have to stand very much separated and go, you know, thousands of blocks. Uh, Maybe this is, that's weird. I mean, we've we've never seen any poll indicating there's apathy about the outcome of this election. In fact, there's a lot of energy around it, which suggests there would be high turnout, and yet it's not manifesting in in viewership of these things. So, yeah, I mean, that's those are conflicting conflicting data points. I, I'm with Abe's theory that actually people will feel they have consumed the important parts of the debate by watching whatever you know their crazy Antida sends them on Facebook the next day, and they'll just they'll go down that social media wormhole yeah. and and get the gist of it. But it will be filtered through the echo chamber that they already inhabit in in a lot of ways. Yeah, and there is this feeling in in, in advance of these events that eh, if I miss it, it doesn't matter because I'm gonna it's gonna come at me anyway. I'm gonna I'm gonna find out. Can I make a personal confession about tonight and why what what, what I'm anxious about tonight for? 
So as you guys know, or as people maybe, as you guys know, but people may not. So I, I stopped uh, uh, tweeting in March of uh, 2019. And I have not, I have not posted a, a tweet since March of 2019. But there is nothing that I loved so much as tweeting on debate nights. I loved, I loved tweeting on debate nights. I loved the joking and the, the, the kind of trading of quips and making fun of other tweeters and all of that. And, and I am going to be going through intense withdrawal. I'm confessing to this now as a means of making sure that I do not break my, you know, that I don't, you know, have a moment uh, you know, it's, you know, it's like any, like any other addiction, right? I mean, you got to take it day by day and you got to say just not today. So I'm saying publicly not today because I just love it. That is, that so is much. what our text exactly. is. Twitter's loss is our game, but the, the problem is the three of us are not as, as, as witty as all of Twitter combined. It's like, <laughs> well, it's not that it's just, it's like, just a, a lot of it is just a methadone. kind of, he wants the yeah. heroin. <laughs> yeah, it's bad. It's bad. Anyway, it's so, well, there's another, I mean, there's another reason why that was so enjoyable is because there's, there's an atmosphere on that platform that during those events that is much less serious and less sanctimonious and more lively. And there seems to be a little bit more, um, toleration for experimentation as opposed to, you know, just reciting, just reciting dogma and talking points. I mean, you'll get, you don't get the kind of feedback that you get from on normal days from people who are so very serious about everything. I guess, but I, I mean, I do have to say that I, I, I am, I'm reasonably sure that I, I did something that was very valuable for me personally. I'm not talking about other people. Um, by getting off when I did, because the last, I don't know, the last 18 months, on Twitter have been horrific. And it is that, I mean, everything that was bad about the platform has, has deepened and gotten more intense and whatever was good about it has very much receded into the background. And I'm not sure that it is still true that maybe on these nights, there is still an element of, um, of playfulness, uh, like there was, um, because, this notion that we are now living at a moment in history at which we could be seeing our democracy crumble before our eyes because voters refuse to do what liberals want them to do um, has driven so many, not has not only made people sort of like boring and humorless and repetitive and monomaniacal and annoyingly, pompous in their, you know, assertions of their own virtue and attacks on the, on the evil of of Trump, but it has drained all the lightness out of everything. So it's like one of those things where you could say, gee, it's a nice day today. And it's like, it will never be a nice day until the, until the evil in the white house is extirpated or, you know, I was, did I mention this last week? I'm sorry. Cause now I'm getting old, but there was this woman I w- dropping my kid off uh, with a with our, a friend who lives on our block to walk to school. So he lives across the street. So a woman comes out of her building walk with her walking her dachshund, and her doorman says, "Well, you know, uh, g- good morning, Mrs. Smith. How are you this morning?" And she's like, "I'm worried that our democracy is crumbling." <laughs> <laughs> 
7.30 in the morning. <laughs> and then the doorman says, like with a smile on his face, well, I thought that was happening already. And then she says, but we're going to get it back, Arun. We're getting it back. We're going to take it back. And I was like, so this is basically happening everywhere. It's like people are now talking to each other in in casual exchanges like David from retweeting Max Boot. I mean, it's like my head is going to explode. Stocks and all the yeah, way down. That's, like, that's a live version of a Twitter reply, though. And right. you should never read the replies. <laughs> so that's that's you being, you're forced into reading the comment section <laughs> in your day-to-day business. That's the thing, like, never read the comments was such a great, thing and now no one has comments anymore because websites don't have comments no, but that's why twitter, twitter has become more toxic as fewer places have you know uh, moderated debate <laughs> yeah exactly all right well uh we will reconvene tomorrow morning to tell you that uh who won and will be right or will be wrong or no one will have won and then the election will happen i will let me just actually let's take two more minutes to talk about this one thing If you believe that polls are not all wrong, Trump's done. Uh, He's done. He's behind by nine in Pennsylvania. He's down in literally every battleground state, though in Florida he's only down by one. Um, But he's down in Michigan. He's down in Wisconsin. He's he's down in the three states that he took to. And he's down in Iowa. And he's down in Arizona. Ohio. And Ohio. Or he's there, there. Yeah, he's either down or tied, right? Or very close in Ohio. Uh, so he's done. So here's the one thing that everybody I know says who really follows us closely is the one hope that Trump has is that there is a world of non-voters that he has reached who are going to vote for him, who by definition therefore can't be seen in polling because polling works on registered voters and particularly likely voter screens all involve people who have voted before. And so his only hope, his hope is that he has done this and it's just invisible and that the pollsters are not wrong or right. It's just that polling does not, cannot incline to this possibility that non-voters become voters and then vote because that has not been a pattern pretty much ever. Or, you know, uh, even though voting has increased over the last 15 years, uh, the n- number of Americans voting, how, how likely is, you know, how much do you get? Because if it's not true, then we're going to talk about this for a month and then Trump is going to lose. Because unless something happens, uh, but, you know, the stability of Biden's numbers are staggering. You know, if you could draw, basically draw a straight line practically from April of 2019 to now with him over Trump, anywhere between four and 10 points. And Trump is, you know, so that's it. Abe, what do you think? Because well, I think it, you're it more reminds, inclined to think this than others. I think it's possible. It reminds me of when Chris Thierwalt was on the um, podcast and he said, look, there's going to be some big thing that the polls get wrong. Um, and we don't know what that big thing is. Um, could it be that? Could it also be that um, the popularity nationally of Black Lives Matter and these revolutionary activism generally is declining in the public's view um, steadily? 
um, regardless of, of how the very same people say they're going to vote. Um, I don't know. I think it's I, I think it's possible. You know, I don't w- w- the, the polls. We have the polls and that's that's all we have to go on. But, you know, uh, it's like uh, Brett Stevens said in his most recent column, if it were only that, um, then we would we would know every election in advance uh, without question. And, and that's not the way it works. Look, I love Brett. That column did have a slight Tom Friedman and the taxi driver quality to it since he knows one person well, didn't bring probably up that in Tribeca who owns a store. But, I mean, it was it's a good column. You should read it. It's in the Times today. His, his interview with an unlikely Trump voter and the question of whether or not she represents a silent majority. The thing is that you just have so many polls that are functioning in, so you know, in... in that are showing the same thing, but they're querying different people. They have slightly different models. They have slightly different screens and slightly different weights. And it's just nothing is coming up Trump's way. So uh, look, if this means that they're wrong and polling, this is the end of polling then. Cause you know, if, if, if an entire election turns seven points in the wrong direction, against polling then polling will no will 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 no longer cease to be a viable way to understand how It'll just America- be as, like astrology well, I mean, but, then, basically. Right. but you know there are some who would argue well that's already been demonstrated by 2016 in terms of the state polling i mean well some of the state polling but remember the state there was actually less state polling than there is now in part because uh national polling you know was seen as more you know determinative or whatever state polling was more expensive i i don't know but you know it's like nobody was polling michigan you know that was part of the reason yeah, they were polling wisconsin and pennsylvania pretty extensively um there were times in which there, there was no time in which the president led hillary clinton in pennsylvania before in i think it was there was one poll in like june and then it was a hillary clinton lead all through until the very uh, end of the campaign, although it shrank, shrunk a, a fair bit at the end of the campaign, but Hillary Clinton's lead was five points, six No, but points, don't you remember there was that points, one poll? Not 10 it, points. Don't you remember there's that one poll? It was either Susquehanna or Trafalgar. I can't remember Trafalgar. which that had Trump leading. And Nate Silk, boy, did Nate nailed it. did the And Nate. they nailed it, too. It was 40, yeah, got 48, it exactly. 47, and that's exactly what the, <laughs> the final yeah. outcome was. And boy, did the Nates go crazy. <laughs> It's a Republican poll. I don't know what what modality they're using. Yeah, blah, 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 blah. Now Nate Silver wants you to believe that, you know, he said since there was a 30% chance that Trump would win, he was actually closer than a lot of people because, yeah, Trump won and he had a 30% chance of winning. The problem with that line about having a 30% chance of winning based on the polls is he didn't have a 30% chance of winning. He actually had a 100% chance of winning. That's actually what it means when you win. Is it's like it's only an unlikely win because because uh, the what happened beforehand was mismeasured. It's not that somehow Trump beat the odds. The odds were mislabeled. You know, I mean, it's not that it's not like uh, you know, it's not like a coin flip. It's not a coin flip. Um, I mean, it's an interesting point because you you know, garbage in, garbage out. If the data are wrong, the data are wrong. The problem here with the data was that some of it was wrong and some of it was right. The national polls were exactly dead on. The 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 poll average had Hillary winning by two nationally, and she won by two nationally. And almost every state poll was right, except in these three, three states. 
but that was that was all that that was all that mattered. Um, I just uh, I don't know. I mean, it'll it'll be interesting to see whether Trump acts like he's behind. What 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 would that look like, by the way, for him to act like he's behind tonight? Hmm. What do you guys think? Is there a would there be a sign that he knows that he has to like he's going for the gold? Well, I think he'll be punching a lot, right? I mean, he would be yeah, active and issuing charges, yeah, and making Joe Biden respond to them. And, trying to find out, um, I'll put you in jail never, line, yeah. Never being defensive, right, right, never trying to defend his own record, but parrying immediately upon a charge to labeling that very same charge against Joe Biden, which is his preferred tactic. Um, yeah, so it would be, it would be uh, pugnacious. But if he were winning... would be anyway, though. But if he were winning... And thought he were winning, wouldn't he? Wouldn't be any different. Right. So I'm just wondering if there, if if there's, I I, I, I threw this at you without any, you know, because I just just came across my, you know, came across my brain. I think it's more. I mean, if he if he's just sloppy, if he doesn't have his facts right, if he doesn't have the you know the obvious talking points down or this parry to this charge that we all know he should say but doesn't say, like if he's sloppy and lazy, like Obama was in the first debate. Then he thinks he's ahead. Well, there's also the fact that the whole reason Trump, Trump's super fans and Trump's super haters both could agree on this one thing, which is he's never been presidential. So it's really hard. That's why it's hard to predict what he would. A typical incumbent has a sort of typical way of behaving if they feel they're ahead and doing well and they can defend their record. But he's never been typical. But what what do people do? When they're staring down the barrel of all kinds of information that tell them that they're on the wrong course and they need to, it's like if you're uh, playing tennis or you're, you're a batter or something like that and you're down five games to one, right, in a set and you're going to lose the set and that's the end of the match. And the only thing that you can do, of course, is just try to get every point right. And try to win points. But of course, in your head, it's like, I got to win this game, and then I got to win the next game, and then I got to win the next game, and then you don't focus on the point, and then you lose the point. Or if you're, you know, it's like, I got to hit a grand slam. And if you think I've got to hit a grand slam, you'll never hit a grand slam. Um, So that's why it's bad to be (laughs) losing, is it's also that your question is, where does your head go? And all you can do is do your best at any given moment. People don't have that in them. Like they want to swing, they want to like change it with one swing. And you that's where you could just, you know, again with stupid sports analogies, you're like Dave Kingman. So you think you could hit a home run, but in fact you strike out 250 times in the season. And yeah, you hit you end up hitting 40 home runs, but you but you strike out 250 times and you're actually bad, not good, even though you like hit a lot of home runs. And baseball is a terrible analogy because baseball just stinks. You can, <laughs> if you are a good oh, hitter, hate mail you hit the ball one third of the time. If you have a three hundred, you're amazing. You're Dave Kingman. No, but, Dave Kingman did not hit three hundred. That's the whole point. He hit two twenty, but he hit a lot of home runs. And then it turned out that hitting a lot of home runs isn't that great if you're only if you're going to strike out most of the time. Anyway, okay, forget the sports analogy. So we're bad. So we don't know. We don't know what Trump, what what a desperate Trump would look like, because he always looks, he either looks desperate or he, or he acts the way people who are desperate act, but that's like his everyday act. So it's not. Or he looks dejected. Don't forget, there was a time some months back where he seemed so dejected 
that John, you um, floated the idea, and I and I thought it was a pretty good one that he had sort of given up already. You know, this was after his first rally that went terribly, um, that no one showed up for, that they got punked on by the the Zoomers, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and you know he didn't seem to offer anything, and that that was a that was a sort of a glimpse into a, 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 a Trump we hadn't quite seen before. But I also think that and I'm going to conclude because we t- I want to say something nice about him on the at the end here so the new new york times story which came out today is about him uh, reconstituting himself recreating his character rebuilding his fortune and sort of repositioning himself in a way that made it possible for him to win the presidency using the apprentice as the lever the show which debuted in 2004 and i have to say reading that story it is absolutely jaw-dropping what he pulled off in the wake of The Apprentice. According to this story, he earned $420 million, both from the show and from ancillary things that came from the show in 10 years. That's $42 million a year. And, uh, and of course, then relaunched himself as a as a the the image of a great businessman, you know the the pop culture idea of a great businessman, all of that in a way that helped him win the presidency. People walk around saying he's a moron and he's this and he's a terrible businessman, and he you know you know he lost all this money. He's very clearly very reckless in real estate and makes bad calls. I mean, he makes bad calls because if he if they were great calls, then you know he wouldn't have gone bankrupt, almost bankrupt in 1991. His golf courses wouldn't lose money; they would make money. He would build these buildings and make a lot of money on them, and he's only made money on one or two buildings and all of that. But this is the greatest branding success in the history of the world. This guy was a businessman going south, and he seized on this opportunity that was offered him to become a toy businessman and made an ungodly amount of money and and understood that where he was going he was going down market not up market he was going low not high he was the way to do this was to do learning annex stuff and endorse uh double stuff oreos and do and and match and sturdy sturdy mattresses and go to MMA and do all that and it was like nothing was too cheap for him to endorse because this was about money. This was, and when you, when you're willing to go low to make money, then, you know, without any concern for what you might look like or how high, you know, your, your sort of reputation or something like that, you can go crazy. And in a country where standards were declining and where the elites are declining and where all of that was happening, he did something ungodly brilliant. I mean, and, and the refusal of the, of the elites to understand the triumph here, whatever happens now, we lose the election, whether he's in trouble afterwards, because he has all these debts that are supposedly he's personally guaranteed and all of that. He was on the downslide to obscurity in 2002, 2003, and he leapt forward and became president in 12 years while making half a billion dollars. Can I just add that the the part of the electorate that knows that story because they enjoy consuming it are the same part that the elite 
certainly in the media, uh, looked down on. These are the deplorables that, as Hillary called them, it's the story of Kim Kardashian, too. Remember, her? she got her start by, by strategically leaking a, a homemade sex tape, right? And now she oversees an empire. It's that, it's, it's that entertainment, uh, that willingness to kind of, P.T. Barnum-esque, will do anything to, to capture attention and monetize it, that he tapped into. And it is that the elite disdain of that impulse is is a, explains a lot about why there's that that's still out there by the way uh trump is well i have it. it yeah <laughs> i mean i mean i have we all you know if you're even remotely it's like this is not a good sign about the country but it's always been it's always been a strain in america i mean that's why i said pt barnum this is always yeah but it's a us. strain right. it's a strain right. but the strain didn't lead into the white house mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that, that you know, and uh, that, that's the joke of this is that people sort of thought this was what Reagan was. Reagan had stopped acting 16 years before or almost 20 years before he became president. And, you know, he was the governor of the largest state in the country. He was, you know, he was the greatest, um, you know, off the cuff debater and speechifier that that we had practically ever seen. And he, you know, basically built himself into this person. But Trump went a different route, and it's not, as I say, I don't think it tells a good story about American culture and where we are and the kind of Ross Douthat's point about the decadent society um, is, is very much at, at play here. But, but, um, but to, but to um, you ign- speak you of Trump's it, yeah. achievement with contempt. Right. You ignore it at your peril, as I think. Yeah. Yeah. You ignore it at your peril, and you misunderstand that you're dealing not with an idiot, but with a genius. And it takes genius to lose a billion dollars and then live off that through not paying tax, you know, and, and figuring out a way to get yourself a $72 million tax refund. Uh, you know, what this is not, it is not reckoning with what he figured out that no one else figured out. And if we don't understand him and understand how he got where he got and how this worked, it's not that we're doomed to repeat his example exactly, um, but we can't understand America and where America is without paying respect to the achievement that he pulled off as a cultural and political figure. You can have contempt for him, you can hate him, you can think he's a disaster and a danger and all of that. But you can separate these out in order to understand something very real and, and very true, I think. Anyway, so we will, this has now gone on for two and hours and 75 minutes. So um, I apologize. Uh, and uh, for Noah, Christine, and Abe, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning. <laughs>